So I got to ask you a question this morning. What do you see when you look outside? Maybe I should ask it this way. What did you see when you came into the church building today? Did anybody, did anybody pay attention and look at all the, the beautiful flowers that are in bloom out there? Anybody look at all of the work that, uh, that Sherry has been doing and, and uh, maintaining and planting? And, you know, one thing I've noticed about Sherry is that she is never satisfied with the way things are. She's always looking and thinking, well, what could I put here and what could I do differently? And, I mean, she switched out stuff in that planting bed out there. It's like every other week she's got something different out there, you know, and uh, because she's always, I, but, but it's, why? Because she, she wants it to look nice, and she's always thinking, well, what would look good here, and how would this go, and well, that's not doing very good. Let's switch it out for something else, and she's always trying to make it look very nice, and she works hard at it. Maybe you noticed that when you came in. You walk in, and you see the rose bushes in bloom. Uh, across the front and the beautiful red roses or look around the side there's some nice yellow I don't know what they are but there's some nice yellow uh, blue, uh, uh, flowers blooming around the side there uh, and just beautiful and you see these things maybe you look out in the farmer's fields I didn't know if the farmer was going to actually get to these fields this year it seemed like he had let them go for quite a while got into them kind of late but he's got them planted now and the corn's coming up and you can look out and see those fields what do you what do you see when you look at these things the other night, I um, had the chance to go, and, and, and Edward and Julie were out there at their, um, the new house that they're buying, and we had a chance to go down to Walworth there, where they're, where they're going to be moving, and, and uh, just spend a little bit of time with them, seeing the house, seeing some of the property, and Edward and I got a chance to walk back. They've got some, some acreage back there in some woods, and we walked back in there a little bit, and you know nothing's cultivated back there. This is just nature, right? But what do you see when you look at all those things? Well, I would submit to you this, that if you have the eyes to see it, if you have the perception that belongs to those people who are no longer spiritually dead, those people who've been raised to new life in Christ, then you should see, when you look at something like that, you should see convincing proof of God's grace in answering prayer in forgiving sins, and in inviting men and women to dwell with him and enjoy his presence and his fellowship. Now, I will admit that that, what I've just said, may not seem at first to be exactly obvious to you. How does looking at the natural world, looking at the fields and the the, the, the the, the life around us in this world. And you say, I don't see it. How can you see all of these spiritual things by looking at the plants around you? Well, if you stick with me for a few minutes, I trust that by the time we get done with Psalm 65, it will be clear to you. Psalm 65 is where we are this morning. I'd like to pray and ask the Lord's help as we study his word. And then we're going to jump into Psalm 65 uh, and uh, see if we can hold on uh, as I try to go through this psalm with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that we have the chance this morning uh, to, uh, to look into your word together. What a privilege. Thankful that you have given us the truth of your word because... Well, it's true that we can see your glory around us in the world. 
There's no way that just looking at the world around us, we could come to know you. There's no way that we could understand just by looking at the world around us that we're sinners who have offended your holy perfection. There's no way that we could ascertain just by looking at the natural world the, 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 the infinite sacrifice of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to die on the cross of Calvary. There's no way that we could understand the desperate need that we have of your grace and the bountiful provision the free gift that you offer. All of these things, we need your word to show us and much more. I'm thankful today that we have it. I pray that you'd help us as we study it, as we look into it. Lord, magnify yourself. Make yourself great in our eyes and our minds and our hearts this morning as we consider these simple truths from your word. And I pray that you would be the star that you would receive all of the attention, all of the glory, all of the awe and the praise this morning. I pray that each of us would humble ourselves and would lift our voices to sing, to join in the chorus of praise to your name today. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the heading of Psalm 65 is very simple. If you look at it there in your Bible, the Psalm of David a song. Remember the phrase to the chief musician that you see there properly belongs to the psalm before it, Psalm 64, as a postscript. But if you look at the beginning or the heading of Psalm 66, you'll find that same postscript to the chief musician is applied to Psalm 65 as well. And so what we have here is we have a song that is written by David to be sung by the choir when Israel gathered for public worship. And it's connected to Psalms 66 and 67. Using those two words, psalm and song, they appear in both of those psalms as well in the heading. And so these two terms together, psalm and song, suggest to us that this was to be sung with instruments for accompaniment. So we are going to do that in a few minutes. We are going to sing this song with the accompaniment of instrumentation. And what you'll see, I think, as we go through it, is that this is a powerful and stirring anthem that was sung when God's people joined together for worship. Now, there are a couple of different ways we could view the structure of Psalm 65. As I surveyed uh, different commentaries and studied this psalm this week, uh, I noticed that there seems to be kind of a general outline that everyone follows. Uh, the outline that, that I saw most often is three stanzas with divisions after verses 4 and 8. And, uh, and so it would, if you followed that, it would give you a basic outline, something like this. I'll just throw this out there for you. Uh, the outline would go verses 1 through 4, we might say, God, our great Savior. Verses 5 through 8, we might entitle, God, our glorious Creator. And verses 9 through 13, we might, we might title it, God, our generous Savior. Provider, And so we have these three concepts in this psalm. God, our great Savior. God, our glorious Creator. And God, our generous Provider. But you guys know me well enough that uh, you know that I don't always follow the, this, the path that everyone else follows. And uh, before I came 
before I kind of wrote that outline out, I had already written out another outline that I'd like to follow this morning. And it's just a little bit of a different approach. And here's why. Because I think the first four verses of the psalm present to us three spiritual expectations, three spiritual truths. Maybe we could put it this way, three claims about God in the spiritual realm. And they are based on the promises that God has made to his people. And the remaining nine verses of the psalm, then I believe, provide the proof, the evidence, the reason that his people should believe what God has said. And so that's how I'm going to approach it with you this morning. We're going to set out those three spiritual claims in the first four verses. And then we're going to prove it. That's, that's the basic gist of the psalm as far as I can see it. And that's how I'd like to approach it this morning. So if you're going to do your own study at home, use the outline I gave you, 1 through 4, God our great Savior, verses 5 through 8, God our glorious creator, verses 9 through 13, God our generous provider, it will work well under those headings. I'm going to follow a little bit of a different approach this morning. But again, you know me, you know that's just kind of how it goes. There is a really interesting, by the way, exchange in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'm not going to read a lengthy portion or anything. I just want to reference this because it might be familiar to you. Jesus was in the city or the town of Capernaum and the religious leaders there objected to something that Jesus said. A man was brought to Jesus who was paralyzed and Jesus looked at him and he said to this man, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders didn't like that. They got upset about that. And they said, this is blasphemy. How can Jesus, a man, forgive sins? And in response, our Lord asks them this question. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? On one hand, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven, (laughs) although that's much harder to do. But in order to prove to them that he had the ability, the authority to forgive this man's sins, Jesus turned to the man and he said, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And the man got up and left. If you think about it, Of the two things, which one is easier to do? Is it easier to forgive the man's sins or to heal his body? Well, only God can forgive sins, right? I would submit to you there are many who may be able to heal the body, but God is the only one ultimately who can forgive sins. Jesus makes that distinction. And what he does then is he uses the lesser to prove the greater. He... To put it in a different way, he uses the visible, the physical, as evidence of his power to perform something even more miraculous in the spiritual realm. So Jesus demonstrates through the, through the, the manipulation, through the, the, the miraculous work in the physical realm, he demonstrates his power in the spiritual realm. And I think the analogy of that is what we see in Psalm 65, and I think this will make more sense to you as we look at it. The psalm begins with spiritual claims. 
And, and, and I will admit, I will admit readily that these spiritual claims require extraordinary evidence. These are extraordinary claims, as we'll see. But that's why Psalm 65 is so incredible. Because it concludes with mountains on top of mountains of evidence drawn from the natural world that all of us can see if we will have the eyes to see it. To put it another way, even though we cannot perceive spiritual things with our eyes because we are just human beings, we have the entire world around us which practically screams to us that God is trustworthy and able to fulfill all of his promises in the spiritual realm. And so that's what I'd like to do this morning. Let's look at the claims and then let's look at the evidence that's given to back them up. I'm confident that by the time we are finished, you will understand God's gracious invitation to come to him and be convinced of his grace that makes it possible for you to enter his presence. So let's look here at Psalm 65, verses 1 and 2. David writes, Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. These verses present us with the opening claim, and I think this is really incredible, that God himself is the greatest good for all mankind. That God himself is the greatest good for all mankind. These verses are all about anticipation. It's the anticipation of God's people as they're gathered together to worship him. Anticipation of the day when all the world will come and worship him together. He starts off there, praise is awaiting you, O God. And that literally could be translated, there will be silence before you. And you say, well, that doesn't seem to match up very well there. Well, the idea of praise is awaiting, that word awaiting is to actually to be silent. Praise is in silence before you, it says, literally. It's an interesting expression. What does it mean? Well, there are different opinions about what it means, but I think what we see here is we get a picture of God's people. They're gathered together in Zion, in the holy city of Jerusalem, the place where God had chosen to dwell. And they're gathered together, and they're waiting. And there's silence. It's almost as if they're holding their breaths. But they're they're, they're, they're in anticipation here of worshiping God, of singing his praise. And it's a whole crowd of people gathered together. And they're just waiting for the moment when the signal comes and then they can sing together and worship the Lord. That's the picture here. Praise is awaiting you. It's silent before you. We're waiting. We're anticipating the second half of the verse speaks here of the vow. That's the song that they're going to sing. The, the thanksgiving that they're going to offer. The praise, the honor of God that they're going to give. That's what they're talking about here. The vow that they will perform. And so the people of God are excited. 
They're eager. They're ready to sing as they wait for their cue. That's the picture we get in verse 1. The people of God gathered together waiting for the cue to sing so that they can worship God. And there's great anticipation and excitement as it builds up to that moment. And I find this to be very challenging. Think about it. If you claim to know God, if you claim to love Him, this should be a challenge to you. That you would quiet your heart before the Lord in anticipation of worshiping Him, in anticipation of singing His praises. Especially when you're gathered together with God's people. But how often do we actually make preparation for this? Now you may not realize it, but our service, as we have designed it, is structured um, for this very purpose. You may not, you may think it just is haphazard because it looks haphazard sometimes up here what we're doing. It's not. Okay, this is the best we can do. No, it, it's, it's not. It doesn't always come off without a hitch, but it is planned out. It is intentionally structured. For what purpose? To focus our attention on God. That's why we start with reading God's word together. So that our focus is turned to him through his word. That's why we pray together, so that our hearts can be directed toward God. That's why we sing the songs that we sing at the beginning, so that our, our attention can be turned to the Lord. That's why we preach. And if you notice, one of the things that we've done since I came to the church six years ago is we've moved the preaching further toward the beginning of the service and we've put more stuff after the message. When I first came, that wasn't how we did things. And I'm not saying this to be negative about that or to say it was wrong. I'm just saying this is intentional. We've made these changes on purpose for a specific reason. And the reason for that is this. So that when we are finished with these things, our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our attention have been turned to focus on the Lord. So that then, after we have made proper preparation, we can lift our voices to sing and worship God in a way that really honors Him. I don't know if it works this way, but it's supposed to build anticipation and energy and excitement in your heart to sing and worship the Lord. That's why we do all the singing we do, by the way, after the message. Because only after that are you ready to sing. Because you've had the opportunity to, to hear to understand, to receive the truth of God's word, to be directed to him, to be brought into proper alignment with him, in obedience and submission to his truth, then you can sing and really worship the Lord. That's the point. That's the goal. 
That's why we do what we do the way we do it. So that you can be prepared in your heart. Because God's people gather together in anticipation of worship. This is, this, this is what we see in the opening verses here. There is anticipation of worship. And this is right and it's good. It's the way things ought to be with God's people. Let me just say this because I can't resist saying this. I have to say this. It irritates me when I hear people talk about singing and, and uh, doing music um, in, in church as a way to get people in the mood for worship. That really irritates me. It doesn't mean, like I said, that we don't use music to help us prepare, but the whole purpose and the thought behind it is not to get you in the mood to worship. It's to get your mind right. It's to get your mind focused where it needs to be, on God. That's why it's not just, a, it's not just that we don't sit up here and sing for 45 minutes and then go, okay, now you're in the mood. Now let's preach. Now let's do this. No, no, no. I want to take you to the Word of God. I want to point you to Him. If that doesn't get you in the mood to worship, then you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping something else. I don't know what it is. But if, if the word of God and the person of God isn't enough to get you in the mood to worship him, then you're not worshiping God at all. So that irritates me, but we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to move on from that. I don't want to talk about that anymore. Because, <laughs> see, this is the thing about the, the gathering here that David is describing in this psalm. The people of God gathering together because though they're anticipating worship and you get this picture of they're silent, they're all waiting, they're, they're getting ready. When the cue comes, then they're going to sing. But there's something else that's in view in verse 2. And it's also an anticipation of something greater. He says here, to you, all flesh will come. This is phenomenal. This is the future hope. It's future hope that is promised both in the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible. That one day all mankind will gather in Zion, the city of God, to worship the Lord. Now it's a very simple statement in this psalm and you might blow right by it and never even stop to take a second look at it. It's spelled out in greater detail elsewhere. Isaiah 66 is one great place to look. In Isaiah 66, the prophet describes the Lord's return to earth, to judge the earth. He doesn't just come to judge the world, he comes to display the glory of God. And he comes to regather the Jews to the promised land. But there's a really striking statement at the end of Isaiah 66. In verse 23, the prophet writes this, It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. 
Isaiah here is writing about this future time when the Lord returns to earth bodily, visibly, judges the world, takes his seat on the throne, and sits ruling over the nations. And he says, in that day, from new moon to new moon, in other words, from month to month, from Sabbath to Sabbath, that means from week to week, continually, repeatedly, every month, every week, over and over, all flesh will gather to worship me, says the Lord. Psalm 65, with just this brief statement, is anticipating that. The language here is exactly the same. All flesh will come before God to worship him. And so what we get here is the people of God and Israel are gathered together in Zion. They're waiting in silence, anticipation, as they prepare to fulfill their vows to praise God. But even as they do that, they are looking forward to the day when men and women will gather from the ends of the earth and join in worshiping our great God and our Savior. That's what's in view here. I thought I'd get an amen with that at least. Something, right? There we go. I don't don't, want to ask for it, but you know... It's exciting. There's a day when all the people all over the earth are going to come together in one place to worship the Lord. And when God's people are gathered together now doing that, they're anticipating that. By the gathering itself, we are expressing the anticipation that this little gathering of just a handful of us, oh, it may be small, It may be insignificant in the world's eyes, but someday all flesh will gather to worship the Lord. It kind of of makes me think, you know, it's like the, it's it's like, you know, when when all of a sudden um, a team starts to be good, you know, like, like last year, all, all of a sudden, out of the blue, the Cubs just kind of became good and like they'd been really, really terrible and kind of where they are now. But they were, but they, they were sorry, Vito, I got to, no, I'm just kidding. But, you know, they, it was like all of a sudden, and what happens when a team goes from being really bad to like all of a sudden they're good? Well, then all the fans come out of the woodwork, woo, we're Cubs fans, yay, and you see it everywhere, you know. I, I, uh, there are a lot of good, true Cubs fans, don't get me wrong, a lot of people who stuck with them for 108 years, <laughs> okay. But it's like the bandwagon. You know, everybody jumps on the bandwagon, right? Well, the the beauty of it is, as believers, as Christians, as God's people today, when we gather, we're not jumping on the bandwagon. We're anticipating it. We're looking forward to it. We're not waiting until everybody else is doing it. We're going to say, listen, this is God. He's worthy to be worshipped. We want to be on this now. We don't want to wait till then. Oh, we look forward to that day, but I don't want to wait. I can't wait till then. I've got to sing. Now, this is where we begin. We begin in these opening verses with a God who will be worshipped. And not just by a handful of believers in a small Mideastern country. Not even just by the, the small gatherings of Christians across the globe. But ultimately, God will be worshipped by the united voices of all flesh. 
And the focus in these verses is right where it belongs. It's on God himself. And so we start here with this picture of God's people coming before him in anticipation of all of mankind joining them in worship. But this brings a very troubling reality into focus. Look at verse 3. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. It's, it's not just his iniquities. Iniquity is just a, a fancy word for sins, for perverseness. But the language here suggests it's the record of it. There's a, the word in the Hebrew here implies the writing of iniquities. It's the record that's kept. Isn't it a troubling thing to think about? That there is a record of offenses. A record of sins and violations against God's law for each one of us. Just the thought of that is a troubling thing, and it should be. It ought to trouble you if you stop to think that in heaven there's a record written down of your iniquity, of your sin, of your rebellion. I just got to let that hang for a second because we need to feel the weight of that. The second half of the verse is so important. He does move from his own personal sins. He speaks here of iniquities prevailing against me, but then he speaks of our transgressions. And we get the sense here, again, there's a collective nature here. The collective transgressions of the, nations of, of the nation of Israel are in view. Now, this may be a little bit strange to you because we don't normally think in terms of other people's sins, Right? I'm not responsible for their sins. I'm responsible for mine. I get that. But yet here he's speaking about my iniquities and our transgressions. Well, we have to remember the context here. This is an Old Testament text. And we have to remember every time we read Old Testament texts that God dealt with the nation of Israel in a way that was unique. He dealt with them as a nation, as a unit. And so there is a sense of the corporate responsibility and also the sense of a need for corporate confession. Every year in Israel, on a specified day in the fall, the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation to cover them for that year. The word cover occurs many times in the book of Leviticus, especially in the passage dealing with the Day of Atonement, chapter 16. That's what the word atonement means, to cover. You see it there in verse 3. You will provide atonement, covering, literally. And it speaks of the forgiveness of sins, the purging of sins, the, the covering over of sins. But of course, the high priest each year had to offer sacrifice to cover the sins of the nation of Israel. But no matter how many lambs were sacrificed, there was always another year and another sacrifice. 
They could never forget the record of their iniquities. It towered over them. It prevailed against them. And even as they, even as they experienced through obedience to the word of God, the atonement, the covering, when the high priest offered that sacrifice every year, it was also a reminder every year you are sinners you have violated God's law. You are in desperate need for your sins to be atoned. That reminder every year. One of the things that was most striking we read through Leviticus earlier this year is that on all those sacrifices, not the Day of Atonement exactly, although the priests did this in the Day of Atonement, but on the other sacrifices, if the individual offered a sacrifice for sins, he had to slaughter the animal himself. You couldn't pass that on to somebody else. You didn't get to have somebody else kill it for you. You had to go. You had to put your hand on the head of that animal and confess your sin, and you had to take the knife, and you had to slice its throat and drain its blood. That was your job. Because you had to see that your sin cost a life that's how bad, how corrupt, how perverse your sin is. That it, it demands a life. It's a graphic thing. It's something we miss because we don't do that. And I'm not saying we should go back to do that. I'm just saying we don't understand it the same way. Because we don't see it. It's not visible in the same way to us. They could never forget every time they wanted to offer sacrifice to receive atonement, covering for their sin. It was a reminder of just how gross, just how vile, just how terrible their sin was. That blood had to be shed. But I also have to remind you that their obedience in offering the sacrifice was not what covered their sins. Look at what it says in the verse. Verse 3. It wasn't their sacrifices. It wasn't their prayers. It wasn't any other spiritual or religious act that they did. It was God himself. As for our transgressions, you, you will provide atonement for them. What a statement. This is the second claim, by the way. The second spiritual claim in the psalm is that God himself atones for the sins of mankind. God is the greatest good, deserving and worthy of worship by all men. But in order for us to worship God, our sin must be atoned. And how can our sin be covered? God will cover it. God will atone for it. I mean, think about it for a minute. How many sacrifices would you have to offer to atone for your sins? Remember that those sins are committed against an infinite God who is perfectly pure and holy without even a trace of impurity. How many sacrifices could you offer that would make up for the offense that you have given to that perfect and holy God? Offer as many as you want, then offer one more. It's never enough. It never could be enough. 
There's no way that you could offer enough sacrifices to make up for the offense that you've given. Your offense, your sin, is against a God who is too holy and pure to even look upon sin. And because of this, as the psalmist writes here, your iniquities, the record of your iniquities prevails against you. Overwhelming. And overcoming you. It's hopeless. But then, but then, God offers of himself, of his own infinite perfection, he offers to cover your sins. That's what David is speaking of in this verse. How could the Israelites come before God? How could they gather in anticipation of worship and think that he would even listen to anything that they said or sang? Because they understood. God atoned for their sin. And it's on the basis of that divine atonement, the divine covering for sin that the Israelites were able to come and worship God. It is God who atones for sin. It's God who makes it possible for men to come to him and perform their vows. What is there for you or I to do to cover our sins? Nothing. God's people pray for sin's covering. We can't cover it ourselves, but we recognize that God atones for sin. And so we pray for God to cover our sin. That's the basis for the people coming before the Lord in these opening verses. That's the basis for their vows that they're going to offer. How much time we got? Not enough, right? I knew this was going to happen. children of Israel come before him because they have prayed because their sins have been atoned by God they come together and worship him but there's something else here you see if that were not enough there's something more in verse 4 <laughs> because God invited them to approach him and he drew them to himself. That's what it says. The nation of Israel would come before his presence to dwell in his very house. Look at verse 4. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. This is the third claim. That God chooses men to dwell with him and be made full. The children of Israel join with David. They join in singing. They sing of the happiness, the satisfaction of the one that God chooses. This is God's 
blessing that's poured out on his people. Not just that he will atone for their sins, to cover their sins, but he invites, he draws them in to come and dwell with him in his house. And you say, well, what's God's house? It's this. No, 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 it's not this. Get the picture here of God as a king inviting these people to come into his palace. Come and dwell with me. Come and stay with me. That's the picture. It's a personal relationship. It's a personal fellowship and intimacy, closeness with God. This is what's offered here. The God who atones for their sin is also the God who chooses them and draws them in to enjoy fellowship with him. Now let me just say this, because we're, we're not going to have time to finish the psalm this morning. We'll have to finish it next week. But we need to understand something. Everything that we have read and said so far has been written from the perspective and to the perspective of believers in the Old Testament era. We talk about collective sin. We talk about the need for that atonement each year, the sacrifice that had to be offered over and over and over, the repeated sacrifices. But we are not Old Testament saints. We have much greater privilege because we understand that Jesus Christ, when he was crucified, when he offered his body and he poured out his blood, we understand that Jesus made a once-for-all sacrifice. And because he made his one sacrifice for all time, there was never again a need for sacrifice to cover sins. Because in Christ, our sins are perfectly and permanently removed, cleansed, atoned for. The payment was made in full. Not just for some sins, but for all of them. And above that, the scriptures tell us that in Christ, we have been invited to come. To come directly. To come boldly into the throne room of God as we pray. That we can go into the very presence of God to enjoy fellowship. So even as you look at these opening verses of Psalm 65, what we haven't talked about yet is the proof. We'll have to wait for that till next time. But understand these principles, these claims. God 
is the greatest good, ultimately he will draw all flesh to come and worship him. Now that's not a universalist statement here. I'm not saying that every person on earth and every person will eventually come to know God and that all of us will eventually end up knowing God and loving God and worshiping God. That's not true. In the context of this and what I read in Isaiah 66, all flesh is after the judgment. There will be those in Isaiah 66 whose, whose bodies are cast out into outer darkness where the flame is never quenched. That's what Isaiah says. And that the worshipers will pass by them on their way to come and worship the Lord and to see those who have been judged. So understand, this is not a statement saying that all people will eventually get saved or all people will eventually go to heaven and eventually worship God. That's not the case. But we gather today to worship the Lord in anticipation of the day when all flesh will know him, when all those who are on the earth will know him and worship him. And we gather together as those whose sins have been atoned by God by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ being drawn into fellowship with him we'll say more about that next week but I trust I trust that you can see yourself in this psalm have your sins been atoned have your sins been covered by the blood of Christ, have they been met with that sacrifice that perfectly satisfies? If so, then you ought to engage in worshiping and praising the Lord. You ought to gather anticipating the worship of God, not just today, but the worship that is to come. And you ought to rejoice in the freedom and the privilege that we have of drawing near to the Lord, to be blessed by him, to enjoy fellowship with him. If you don't, if you don't know what it is to, to approach the Lord, to dwell in his house, to be in fellowship and be satisfied with him and with what he gives if your sins have not been atoned, if you've not, uh, been, uh, they've not been covered by that sacrifice, then I would just point you to verse 2. The first line of verse 2, which is so important. Because God is not a God who is distant and far off and uncaring. He is the one who hears prayer. And so if you have never Come to him to receive the covering of your sins. If you've never come to him to, to experience fellowship and blessing in his presence, then I would implore you today that you pray to him. He is the God who hears prayer. This is why we come to him. And if you pray to him, if you seek him, Though your iniquities prevail against you, he will atone. 
He will cover them by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.